Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of Guido Talks, your weekly roundup of all things Guido, all the news and gossip that we've got through on the site this week. Well, my name's Tom Harwood and yet again I am joined by Paul Staines, who is the founder and editor of Guido Forks, as well as reporter Christian Calgi. So, without further ado, it has been a manic end to the week this week. We're recording this podcast on Thursday and something totemic has just happened in the Labour Party. The former leader, Jeremy Corbyn, has just had his membership suspended and the whip withdrawn. So let's talk through this EHRC um, bombshell, really, that has just hit Labour. Uh, Calvi, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, I spent most of the morning uh, fantasising at the ludicrous idea that Jeremy Corbyn would be sacked off the back of the report. And uh, I got back from grabbing some lunch and walked through the office door just as the news came through. And I, I frankly had to sit down because I personally never thought that Keir Starmer would be willing to throw you know, this isn't just a grenade into the internal labour war. You know, this is an A-bomb. This is uh, absolutely uh, set off a raging fire with the socialist campaign group. There are now talks of coordinated resignations. I I now don't think we can rule anything out, uh, especially given my predictions this morning were so immediately uh, disproved. Um, but it has been a day of political theatre that I, uh, when I woke up this morning, knowing that we were to expect the EHRC report at 10 o'clock, uh, was not for one moment expecting. Just to pick you up on one point, you said that uh, Keir Starmer had got rid of Jeremy Corbyn. Well, according uh, to Labour HQ, it was Labour HQ that made the decision, and they didn't dare mention it to the leader of the Labour Party, and that's it. Now, I don't believe oh, that yeah. Pontius Pilate kind of <laughs> yeah. I think that people around Starmer have made it very clear to people who've asked that they think the war with the Corbynites is a necessary prerequisite for them winning a general election. And I tend to agree. I mean, they are doing the Blairite playbook. In fact, you know, get rid of all fight, have a fight with the left, show the public that you are changed under new management. This, I do not believe this was not planned. And they were just waiting for Corbyn to give them an excuse. And sure enough, he delivered, as you can probably bet your last ruble that he would. And it was extra extraordinary because, of course, the Conservative Party's press release around the whole EHRC affair was that if uh, it ended in a very provocative line this morning, the Tories sent out a message to all journalists saying, if the Labour Party is really serious about this, they'll expel Jeremy Corbyn. I don't think for a second anyone sitting in CCHQ actually believed that the Labour Party <laughs> would go ahead and actually do that. It, it was a, set up as a bar that they couldn't reach. And to be fair to the Labour Party, they've actually mm. absolutely smashed it out of the park. And of, of course, I say that it, there may be a case of mass resignations. There may also be a case of mass sackings. So we've seen how brutalist, uh, ironically Stalinist, uh, Sakia has been in regards to 
Corbyn. Uh, we've also had the campaign against anti-Semitism say that Corbyn was only one part uh, of the anti-Semitism saga and have put in formal complaints about uh, 14 other members of the Labour Party uh, of, of Parliament. Uh, so it may very well be the case that um, some of them are pushed before they can jump, but the Socialist Campaign Group are pretty stunned, actually, if you just judge by the discoordinated action, they put out a statement, some MPs hadn't cleared it. It's clear that there is, there is, there is a state of shock, of almost PTSD, that is now ringing in the ears of many in Labour. Absolutely. It does raise a couple of questions about the response of the Labour Party, because if they've done this for Jeremy Corbyn, there are lots of other MPs that the campaign against anti-Semitism have put forward and evidence about things that they've said over the years. It's quite hard to justify kicking out Jeremy Corbyn if you don't kick out those 14 other MPs. But of course, one of those is Angela <laughs> Rayner, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, who holds an elected um, Party. The elected member, yeah. I mean, some of them are clearly, you know, we've all known for a long time, you know, Rebecca Long Bailey made that big cock up during the, um, recently and got kicked out of the shadow cabinet. You know, some of them have been pretty unpleasant and, you know, they dress it up in anti-Zionist language, anti-Israel language, but it's you know, pretty near to mark. Also, I don't think it's a huge ask for 14 MPs to be suspended. Boris, less than a year ago, chucked out 21 Tory MPs before a general election. If he can do it, Starmer can do it. And looking at the electoral angle here, I think it's quite clear that Boris's ruthlessness towards those 21 Brexit rebels made the Conservative Party seem more united in the eyes of the electorate, more election ready, and it probably helped pick up a few more seats than they otherwise would have done. In the same way, Starmer seems to be very serious about going into the next election, even though it's four years away. Something like expelling 14 extra members of Parliament would uh, put him in good stead in the eyes of the public, I feel. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't think Labour HQ is going to be keen on taking advice from uh, Guido's editorial team, but <laughs> since we've advice so far, I, I think it would make them stronger, you know? Although, although it could be argued, of course, that in throwing out the Remainers, Boris, it frankly, emboldened a lot of the grassroots campaigners, whereas it's the opposite in Labour's case. If you threw out all of the loony left that we wrote uh, quite a good briefing on last week, and many of whom have been mentioned by the campaign against anti-Semitism, you're going to lose a hell of a lot of young, energetic, hard left campaigners. A lot of the momentum uh, you know, shoe power that we saw in 2017 and 19, you will, you will um, disempower. But, but you, but you will, you'll tell the voters, look, we're the same old Labour Party of Tony Blair. And, you know, you lose a few loony activists and gain millions of voters. I, I, you know, I don't think he's going to take over votes anyway. Anyway, <laughs> we'll send it on to Labour HQ once the uh, podcast is out. Yes, this will be one to follow up for weeks and weeks to come, I'm sure, because even though momentum has ironically lost a bit of momentum in the last weeks and months, the same people are, are intent on organising and it will be interesting to see what they do about this all. But sticking with Sir Keir, he's had an interesting week of ups and downs. His decisive action uh, on Thursday to suspend the whip from Jeremy Corbyn um, sort of mirrors uh, a rocky start to the week that the Labour leader had when 
he ran someone over in his car, or at least bumped into a cyclist on his car. Now, Calgary, can you tell us sort of what happened here? Well, uh, it, it sort of uh, mixed reports, but essentially what we seem to have made up uh, from eyewitness reports is that Sakir was uh, trying to park or trying to U-turn, uh, accidentally reversed onto a delivery driver, uh, and the delivery driver was in a lot of pain. Uh, Sakir apparently, I think, sped off, uh, and then it emerged that he is being investigated uh, by the police over this incident. Um, I, think, I think I should jump in there because the Labour Party are very, very clear that um, Keir Starmer stayed until the ambulance arrived um, and didn't, didn't drive away and, 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 and waited for that ambulance to come. A passerby called an ambulance. Um, but I think it is pretty clear that he was driving the wrong way down a road. Um, and he's a man not um, known to perform a huge number of U-turns, so it's not that surprising that, that he was on the wrong <laughs> side of the road that day. It's, it's certainly the second time this week uh, that he has seriously damaged a uh, North London-based keen cyclist. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what, what does he have? In, he's got it in for cyclists, clearly. <laughs> it, was clearly but, it was clearly a, pre a preemptive planning move on his part, perhaps. So, but, so but there are some big questions over this, because the police investigation is still ongoing. Um, it, it, it's quite clear that Keir Starmer was in the wrong, um, haphazardly, potentially even dangerous driving. I mean, this, this could be something that does come back to bite him. And of course, this happened on Sunday, uh, and he attended the police station on Sunday to give a full account of the witness statement. But the Sun newspaper have a photograph of him outside that same police station on the Monday as well, which has raised a huge number of questions, and I'm sure that this will not be the last that we've heard of this incident. Making it sound like Chapaquetic for uh, for him, you know, he's knocked into a cyclist, and apparently that Monday he was on the way to his personal tailor, as <laughs> yes. people would be on his way to his personal tailor, and was just passing to the police station. But it's also it's also the it's the second Labour MP that has been referred to the police this week because on uh, Thursday morning or Wednesday evening, we also learned that Apsana Begum, uh, the MP for Poplar and Limehouse, has also been referred to the police over housing fraud. Uh, Labour have said they're not going to suspend her over that, although she may still be suspended over anti-Semitism. But it's, uh, it's not been a great week for Labour and the law. No, certainly not. But I think we might get stuck down too much in the Labour Party over the course of this podcast because we've spoken about nothing else so far. So let's move on to a party that we don't hear all that much about uh, in the news at the moment. And that is the Liberal Democrats, or more specifically this week, the Welsh Liberal Democrats, where we pointed out something that I, I think it's a shame that hasn't been picked up more widely in the press, because to me it seems like it's quite a significant moment. The leader of the Welsh Liberal Democrats, a woman by the name of Jane Dodds, has been pretending to be locked down in Wales, but actually residing in sunny, leafy, perhaps not sunny these days, <laughs> um, but, but leafy Richmond in London, where she's able to go out and buy less than essential items in shops, unlike in Wales. And the reason this is particularly damning 
is because the one Lib Dem member of the Welsh Assembly is in coalition with the Labour Party, is, is the one vote that keeps the Labour Party in power in the Welsh Assembly, um, that put forward this ridiculously draconian lockdown that the people of Wales are suffering under right now. And uh, I think a week or so before that lockdown came in, the leader of the Welsh Lib Dems just skips across to London. But doubly damning is that she was pretending to be in Wales. We have a video of her on Wednesday evening talking to the BBC where she keeps saying here in Brecon and Radnorshire. And she wasn't in Brecon and Radnorshire. She was in Richmond. <laughs> yes, and she put out Facebook statements saying, oh, I know it's really difficult, really tough. You know, we've all got to stick at it together. <laughs> uh, of course, you know, of course, she's uh, <laughs> 200 miles away or however long it is. Uh, but of course, uh, eventually the press office just uh, handed it to us on a plate after we'd spent what seemed like what, about half an hour comparing mantelpieces and yeah. photos on right move. Eventually they confessed and... Uh, uh, reluctantly uh, gave us the story, but uh, mm. it's it's it was a really I thought it was a really funny story. Yeah. Also, pretty significant in uh, Welsh politics. Shout yeah. out to the people on Twitter who uh, said we got it wrong, and there were two different uh, buildings, two two different mantelpieces. After she'd admitted it was true. <laughs> Yeah, I particularly enjoy people commenting on a piece when they clearly haven't read the quote from the Welsh Liberal Democrats that was in the piece. Oh, anyway. Well, it's, it's, uh, especially, especially given Twitter now, now asks you to read the piece before <laughs> commenting on it, and they're clearly yeah. getting around it. Uh, no, I think there's just no hope with some people on Twitter. It's best not to get too hung up over it. Um, but I think that's enough airtime that we've given them to the Liberal Democrats, only to say that this story, of course, broke on the day that the Liberal Democrats tried to take control of the media agenda by trying to put forward some sort of plan to save Christmas. That was, to some extent, squashed by the fact that they're evading their own lockdowns. Um, but Calgary... Uh, away from party politics, what's going on at the BBC? Well, the BBC is having a week in the sun, uh, as far as Guido is concerned. Uh, first of all, we had uh, a classic of the genre and the expert activists. We uh, discovered that uh, a teacher in Leeds complaining about uh, a lack of free laptops that the government had promised uh, was not only uh, a Labour activist, uh, but was a, a Labour activist of the best kind, a close personal friend of Richard Bergen, uh, someone who had endorsed him uh, for leader. Uh, so in many ways, Guido and this head teacher have a lot in common. Uh, but not only that, but we also pointed out that uh, his consternation that the government was not giving Leeds children their allocation of free laptops uh, was completely unfair, given Leeds have had 2,100 free laptops and according to our source, half of them remain in a warehouse in Leeds, not having been handed out by the local council. Uh, so that was a quick fact check from us. And then we had a second piece about uh, Marcus Rashford, uh, whose name I butchered on the podcast last week. And uh, that was that we, uh, a, a member of the BBC Breakfast reporting team. Uh, essentially, if you looked down her... Twitter feed. It was it was completely uh, pro Marcus Rashford. It was retweeting all his uh, pieces. It was 
doughy-eyed, and it was it was insipid. And, and this was uh, uh, Sally Nugent. We eventually found out that actually Sally Nugent is friends with uh, who else but Margaret Rashford's uh, a PR agent, uh, head of brand strategy Kelly Hogarth on Instagram, and they're very friendly. Uh, but this all preceded uh, a very large uh, update to the BBC's social media uh, terms and conditions for their reporters. And I'm sure Paul will want to walk through that. Well, uh, Tim Davey, the new uh, boss of the D- BBC, said that he's going to stamp out all the virtue signaling and partisanship that goes on on Twitter from BBC journalists. And he reminded them of their responsibilities to the integrity of the BBC brand, which apparently is impartial, um, and said that, by the way, guys, saying opinions of my own, not the BBC's, is not a get-out clause, because <laughs> you're allowed to have opinions if you're a BBC journalist. So he's, he's, some, some of it is smart. So the, the obvious stuff about partisanship, some of the senior journalists do get around it by, in my opinion, uh, by favouriting and liking uh, consistently in one partisan direction. I'm not going to name names, but I think there's a senior journalist on a major flagship uh, TV show who retweets everything you can find that's anti-Trump. Now, she may just be able, only able to find that stuff. Some of us have very bad fellow lists. But I think we get the message of what she's hinting at. Um, that's going to be outlawed, or at least he's, he's saying that you should be aware that if you consistently favour, like, or follow a certain type of um, uh, content, then perhaps people can infer your revealed um, bias. So that's interesting because what people say and what their actions reveal has been a thing that's very hard to plug, uh, and I, I think they've hit on something. Um, within an hour of the new guidelines being announced, we found a, um, a BBC World Service uh, journalist uh, laying into the Henry Jackson Society, Quillam, uh, a number of think tanks that take a certain line on um, uh, Islamic extremism. And uh, we, I highlighted it on Twitter, and she has now deleted the tweet. I suspect, and uh, if I could ask, readers, viewers and listeners to keep an eye out for BBC journalists who they think are being partisan on Twitter or Facebook or wherever they follow them and send them into us because we would like to keep track of it. And that also means if you think that the journalists maybe aren't saying anything partisan themselves but are retweeting and favouriting from one side, we're quite interested in doing a statistical look at that kind of thing. So send that into us please, co-conspirators. And I think we should really stress here, this is only about those journalists who say they're impartial and then are very clearly not. This isn't a, this isn't a sort of, you know, if, if you work for The Sun, it's totally fine to have a view. If you work for the BBC, then you, yeah, if you work for The Guardian, then absolutely, opine to your heart's content about uh, how terrible the Tories are or whatever. If you work for the BBC, then absolutely do not do that. You have a solemn responsibility as, a, as someone who works for the public broadcaster, this, this, this organisation that is supposed to be uh, resolutely impartial, that's where the problem is. Not that 
journalists can't write whatever they want to, of course they can. This is specifically about people who are representing organisations that claim to be impartial, but quite patently are not. And away from uh, the, the more serious side of the uh, new social media charter, I can't, I, I've got to say I was a particular fan of the line, do not post when your judgment may be impaired, uh, which is BBC terms for don't tweet while pissed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, here's, here's, a, here's a point of comparison, I think, because whilst the BBC were putting forward these quite stringently, and let's face it, um, in reality, everyone knows that these are measures that are supposed to clamp down on left-wing tweeting, really, because that's the bulk of what happens at the BBC. <laughs> Quite apart from that, something else was happening at News UK that could be argued to be exactly the opposite end of the spectrum. What was this, Paul? Well, uh, a source inside the Shard, News UK's headquarters, they're the publishers of The Sun, The Times, um, Talk Radio, Times Radio, uh, set us a Zoom call, a video of a Zoom call between um, human resource, the personnel department, figures in there about their new uh, diversity and social inclusion uh, policy, which, and to my surprise, and uh, probably to Rupert Murdoch's surprise too, um, <laughs> is going to move them in a certain direction. Now, by all means, a little bit of politically correct terminology, maybe some phrases from the past aren't acceptable nowadays, and maybe there's a commercial imperative to do that. But the idea that you're going to move the sun in a woke direction is, is frankly, as they admit in the video, which is worth watching, I mean, we took an excerpt of a few minutes out of a much longer video, where their audience is not in that place. Their readers of the sun are not, frankly, interested in a, uh, a diversity and inclusion agenda in the sun. They want good sports reporting, entertaining news. You know, the, the, the social engineering stuff is of no interest to them. So why that the personnel department is trying to fob that onto the journalists concerned? And I'd like to see, um, formerly of this parish, Harry Cole's diversity class, Richard Little has promised to video his diversity training um, looking forward to that. Uh, uh, Julia Hartley Brewer at Talk Radio, is she going to <laughs> pass her work exams? I, I very much doubt it. And the idea, I think it's pretty arrogant from the personnel department to think that they will be able to enforce this kind of regime on those kind of uh, journalists. I think the other thing that, that was brought up was they, they, they do actually employ quite a, a large number of ethnic minority um, employees. Um, they're, they're really not too, too out of whack with, uh, with the wider population when it comes to representation. Actually, one element of representation, which, I mean, let's face it, this podcast is very poor at, but also News UK is quite poor at, is uh, state school versus private school diversity, which doesn't seem to be something that's being addressed at all within this report. It seems to be very, very surface level. Well, firstly, Tom, I think you'll find this podcast is two-thirds state school educated. You went uh, to a so posh we're school. Fine. You went to uh, a private school, Calgary. You went the to a... Point, there's a video of you singing point. in a bow tie at your private school on YouTube. <laughs> I'm just wondering, Tom, given you're a regular contributor 
uh, on talk radio are you also going to have to go along to this uh, diversity and awareness course I don't think that they would do that for their contributors. I think they'd only have to do it for their employees. Otherwise, I'm sure if you asked. I'm sure if we asked on your behalf. <laughs> Actually, I've just remembered, to go back for a second, you went to the same private school that Femi Oluwale went to, <laughs> the, the skiing anti-Brexit cam- um, uh, campaigner. Um, so, so you can't get away with that one too easily. <laughs> Right. Well, I think on that note, we should probably move on to, uh, it's actually quite a nice segue because we've just briefly mentioned Femi Oluwale, who is someone who really loves the European Union and thinks it's the best place in the world. Well, we've zeroed in on what's happening in the European Union this week, not so much in terms of Brexit, which is a process that's still ongoing, and I think it should probably be a little bit higher up the news agenda, but is obviously pushed out with everything else because of course coronavirus has swept back in a huge way across the continent and the number of cases in the EU now far surpasses the number of cases in the United States of America and you used to see all of these sort of commentators on Twitter and whatever um, smugly sharing these graphs that show how, how few cases there are in the EU and how many there are in America and say that that's all to do with uh, the President of the United States of America and the way that he's handled it. Well, actually, you don't see many of those comparisons these days. And that's because, as we showed in this piece, there is an enormous resurgence from um, Spain, which has had a higher per person death toll than the UK, as has Belgium. That's something that we don't hear about that often. But also now we're seeing these really quite harsh lockdowns swoop in uh, and clamp down on the liberties of the people of Europe um, as that rate is climbing so high. It doesn't now look like Europe is handling it all that much better than America. I think that that Swedish epidemiologist at the beginning of the pandemic said that in the end, the curves around the world will tend to, to merge and be the same. I think he'll be proved right. There's, I think all we do when we have these lockdowns is delay. And there might be an argument for not overwhelming health services, but in the end of the day, until we have a vaccine, we're going to get infections and it'll be a perpetual um, coronavirus lockdown re- relax, lockdown, relax cycle. Now, it's a brave politician who would want to um, let the virus rip if there were a vaccine that comes in a month or two. Um, that's the political calculation, I suppose. If, if there is no vaccine on the horizon, if it looks like we're going to have to live with this for years and years to come, then obviously the perpetual lockdown situation is is laughable it's just not realistic and it shouldn't happen however is there a case for maybe um having some harsher suppression if we know that there's a vaccine just around the corner maybe it's an argument that rages on (laughs) yes and we're and we're not epidemiologists here on Guido Forks, or indeed Guido Talks. And actually, um, Kaugi printed out a lovely little tweet of mine to put on my desk uh, this week. What did it say? Uh, well, it was one of your uh, more philosophical points about being aware of the limit of our knowledge and uh, bearing that in mind when we're extolling on, a, on a, uh, an academic issue. So, 
Absolutely. Words, words we can all take to heart. Oh, yes. Marvellous. Well, I suppose on that positive point, uh, we will leave you for this week's episode of Guido Talks. Uh, thank you for listening and joining us as we rip through what, what, what became actually quite a substantive news week, despite the fact that we are currently in recess and there's no PMQs and no parliamentary intrigue, so to be, to be said. Um, so thank you for watching or indeed listening and catch us again the same time next week. Bye.